Welcome to the second installment of our experiment in disagreeing agreeably. Uh, Wait, here, is that the name? Are we sure? Because I thought it was like agreeing, agreeing disagreeably. disagreeably. I know. We keep screwing it up. As I've told you, I think agreeing disagreeably is a great podcast for two people who agree on everything but hate each other. Mm-hmm. So I just, think I think I have some people I that are in my party in my... that might want to do that <laughs> podcast with me. <laughs> so we, we are, are very happy to be here on the podcast. I'm Jesse Mermel and I'm a Democrat. And I am Jennifer Nassor. I am a Republican. That, that, you really are. Oh, yeah. No, I'm a Republican. Not only am I a Republican, but, you know, former chairman of the Mass GOP. I know. Every family Yikes. has a black sheep. <laughs> Thanks, um, so we're coming off of a pretty busy hashtag Matt Polly week. Um, we had tax proposals and, you know, Globe Suffolk University poll results and not political, but still important. The Red Sox clinching the AL East. Very important. Very important. Yes. Sports in Boston is so important, except when you live in the city and then the traffic. And that's when we want flying cars. <laughs> That's the only thing I don't like about living in the city with our great sports that we have. Next podcast, Jen in a flying car. Yes. <laughs> so um, one of the things that kind of caught my eye this week um, that started to get my political blood boiling <laughs> a little bit uh, was hearing about taxing college endowments. And kind of one of the flags for me is as someone who – sat on two university boards, one state and one private, and uh, sat on the development committees on those boards. Looking at this proposal, all I kept thinking was, hmm, this kind of looks like something that will hurt the neediest students the most and the neediest families the most. And so I guess Jesse, you know, like the part of the part of the discussion that I keep thinking of is, you know, as Republicans, we don't like to tax anything. Breaking news. Break right? Is yeah. that that's surprising to you? I'm I've sure. heard this about you guys once or twice. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's 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 a funny little thing. Yeah, we got to get principle. you over that. <laughs> is I mean, there a pill fisc- you can take? Fiscal conservative. We just don't like taxing people. <laughs> so. Looking at this, I say, okay, well, one, taxing. Two, how do – and I know that the president had come up with this originally, but it seems as though Democrats were – you know, a Democrat was swirling around this this week. Um, But but policy-wise, do Democrats don't actually agree with – this principle, even though it is taxing. I mean, what do you, what is your perspective here? So let's let's spell out for folks who might not be as nerdy as we are. This is a, a proposal that came up in the gubernatorial campaign that would tax. I think it's nine of the biggest schools, private universities, not public universities in Massachusetts, Harvard, MIT, um, and some of the other big players that you would expect. Harvard and MIT would pay the vast majority of this, almost two-thirds of what would be expected to be a billion dollars in revenue, which would be dedicated to transportation and education. So just to sort of set the table for folks. Um, You know, what I think is that we desperately need revenue for transportation and education in an amount that far exceeds what this proposal would even cover. And I don't think anybody likes taxing anybody, right? Regardless of which party you're in, no one's like, hey, great news. We're taking money from you. (laughs) But what Democrats do like and what I very much believe in is the importance of investing in our future workforce, the the importance of investing in our infrastructure, the ability 
to move people and goods and services safely and reliably from A to B. And we have really fallen short over decades in both parties in doing that in Massachusetts. And at some point, we have to face reality. There is never going to be uh, a proposal to raise revenue that's universally popular, right? That doesn't exist. And so what I think Democrats certainly agree on is that we need to have this conversation. We need to stare at ourselves in the mirror and figure out how we raise that revenue. Um, there are going to be questions about this proposal. That's fair. There should be about any revenue proposal. But um, we are fooling ourselves if we don't think that a real conversation about revenue has to be had. Yeah, it seems like, you know, picking on um, pick, picking on people who really shouldn't be picked on. I mean, because, you know, if you if you were lucky enough to go to Harvard, and Harvard does have a tremendous endowment, and God bless them that they have that. But they're also able to then take students who otherwise couldn't afford to go to Harvard at $65,000 a year and be able to give those kids a free ride to school, which I think is amazing. And as someone who um, went to a state university herself, my dad died when I was little. My mother couldn't afford to send me to college, and thank God we had good state universities. Um, you know, I find the decision to ta- to the proposal to tax endowments um, and to 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 be um, dis- distasteful, disgusting. I, you know, it it uh, it really upsets me. But I mean, I think I think more importantly than even taxing. The, those endowments is the fact of these are private universities. So you now have government intervention. It's like the separation of church and state. You have government intervention into what a private university is doing. But private businesses pay taxes, and these are private universities, well, universities that enjoy taxes. public benefit, right? They, not not by their not by their endow- You're talking about their endowments. Their endowments are like investment funds. Those are that's money that they're putting aside that they're investing and they're giving back to the students who need it the most. Right. But a public university benefits from existing in a community with roads and bridges and trains that work. They benefit from an existing in a community with a well educated, prepared workforce that can help run their schools and their programs. I mean they exist in the totality of our society. Yeah, but I mean the benefit is that the people that they spit out of those universities end up mostly being our workforce. That no ends question. up being our biotech in Massachusetts I don't or think anyone's our finance in Massachusetts. That the top colleges and universities in Massachusetts don't provide a huge benefit in return. Um, the question is, and it's an open question, whether or not they should also be contributing to the finances of the state in order to invest in some of the things that they benefit from the most. And for me, you know, it's not the Harvards of the world that might keep me up at night. I, I do want to know for some of the smaller schools on this list, like, you know, Smith College is on this list, Amherst College is on this list. What does that mean for them? Um, is there a proposal to phase it in so that people might be able to plan financially? But for me, really, the bigger question is this conversation about what it means for the future of Massachusetts if we do not invest in transportation and education. This proposal would raise about a billion dollars. We need about $7 billion just to get to a state of good repair on the MBTA. Forget roads and bridges and all the other important components of our infrastructure. The MBTA alone, you know, not necessarily in the greatest shape, 
needs $7 billion to get to where it needs to be. So, you know, at some point, we've got to make some hard choices. Yeah, and I think the hard choices, sadly, you know, had to be done many years ago, and it's kicking the can down the road. And I think, you know, the governor has done a great job of trying to fix that. I, it, my my concern is that it becomes a slippery slope. It becomes a slippery slope of starting to tax these these private institutions taxing their donor pool, do you then get to a point where you're taxing the Red Cross and you're taxing UNICEF and you're but ta- there's taxing no, Home I mean, for Little Wanderers on their donation listen, base? I mean, that would be what I would be concerned plenty about. Plenty of precedent for eliciting payment in lieu of taxes, pilots, uh, at the municipal level from these large institutions, many of which own a lot of land. So, you know, as you and I have talked about, I used to be on the select board in Brookline, and we had long conversations over many years about getting pilot payments from Boston University, which has a substantial physical presence in Brookline. That did not turn into, you know, five, ten years down the road, going to tiny nonprofit so-and-so and asking them for a pilot program. I mean, this has been implemented in municipalities across the Commonwealth, and I would imagine across the country, though I, I don't know that for sure. And we haven't seen that turn into taxing, you know, small mom-and-pop nonprofits that are doing great things in the community. Well, okay, so I, I get what you're saying. However, um, as a as a donor, right, back to like my, you know, little SUNY school in New York, or a big SUNY school in New York, but, you know, what would, if I found out that they were being, my donation was being taxed, I would stop giving them a donation, and I would go give it to someone who's not being taxed. But would it, so, you know. I I genuinely don't know the the answer to this. Would the fact that your donation is being taxed when, by the, when the university ultimately makes that payment, does that change the tax deductibility of your gift? That doesn't, doesn't make any sense it to me. Matter. You could still get a tax deduction. As a, I, my, the way I feel is, look, you know, it's one thing to pay taxes. I would much rather have a tax smorgasbord and say, okay, if you're going to pay 30% in taxes, then here, p- you pick what you want to give to. I suddenly have this amazing vision <laughs> of you at like an all-you-can-eat buffet of taxes <laughs> and going and picking like, I'll have well, the like carrot none. cake tax and the like... <laughs> Yeah, I would like no. T- I would like the no tax option. <laughs> but if I had to pay taxes, I would prefer picking which wh- where my money went to, and not saying that the government is going to say, "Okay, thank you for your donation. I'm now taxing that. I'm going to take that, and I'm going to apply it to the roads and and tunnels and bridges and whatever else." Oh, by the way. There are people who graduate from Harvard that actually do not live in Massachusetts. So now their donations are being going to be taxed for things that they are not actually even but benefiting off of. But how would you feel of? if the community around your alma mater suddenly went to hell in a handbasket? If everything around your alma mater crumbled, if the roads and bridges weren't working, if the workforce wasn't prepared and you couldn't have the best and brightest administering that school, wouldn't you feel like that was bad for your alma mater? Wouldn't I don't be- think Cambridge is doing that poorly right but now. But you gave I think the example okay. of your school in New York. And yes, right. you know, Cambridge is, is doing just fine. But if, if your point is that you don't like this donation that would then be taxed and you wouldn't get to to um, have any say in how it is spent, isn't it ultimately spent in lifting up the community that supports the institution you are donating in order to advance? No, not necessarily because it's the state that would be taxing. And then the state gets to say, okay, well, we're taking the money from Harvard and we're going to put it into 
Springfield or, you know, I mean, it's, I, I think, and we're sorry, Harvard, that we keep talking about you. <laughs> we're sorry to the other institutions that we're not speaking about you. Um, but it just ends up that just is the one that I'm we just going to throw out this on. crazy idea that we are a commonwealth and our fates are intertwined and what happens in Springfield matters to what happens in Cambridge and well, what happens in Cambridge matters in Springfield. I, I, absolutely, absolutely. However, I guess my point is that we need to we we need to keep finding ways to cut and trim fat out of our spending and the legislature needs to really pull themselves together a lot more in figuring out ways to not spend 30 what are we up to 36 billion dollars a year um, and figure out ways of saying you know what we can get services more efficiently and effectively without having to go out and to raid uh, university endowments that's all I'm going to say on it. I think we might have to agree to disagree. You mean we're going to be disagreeing agreeably? Or Tessie? agreeing disagreeably? Whatever it is. Whatever we can't figure out the it. name of our own You know, it, it's thing. one of those disagreements that we're just going to keep having. So we're going to have to see if we disagree agreeably on our next topic. Um, we mentioned earlier that there was some really, um, I think, fascinating polling that came out last week. And so we're uh, we're going to transition and talk a little bit about some ballot questions. Yes, we are. And most important ballot question that we're going to be speaking about today is question three. And the folks from, uh, we have two guests today that are yes on three. And they are going to be discussing with us how important that ballot question is and what it means to uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and to families around the Commonwealth. So last week, The Globe and Suffolk University released a poll about the various candidates and questions that we'll be seeing on the ballot in November. And while there was a lot of attention on the races for governor and U.S. Senate, it felt like the strong support that question three, the transgender anti-discrimination proposal, is enjoying kind of slipped a bit under the radar screen. And so we wanted to take uh, a minute to examine what's going on there. And so I, I'm very pleased. Our first guests ever. Guys. Yay. Yay. So, exciting. so exciting. There will be um, a, a certificate later or, <laughs> or some sort of prize. I don't know. If it doesn't have glitter on it. Jesse, I'll be very disappointed. If it doesn't oh, have totally. glitter on it, I will not present it to you. <laughs> you know what? I have a bunch of girls, so oh, I've great. got glitter like you wouldn't believe. Jen comes with supplies. Yes. I come. Um, my daughter will be completely jealous <laughs> that I get a certificate because oh, it's usually goodness. all about her. There you go. Well, let me introduce our two very first guests. We have Matt Wilder, who's a communications consultant for the Yes on Three campaign. Full disclosure, Matt and I work together in the Patrick administration. And Jeannie Talbot, who's the mom to a transgender teen. Thank you guys so much for spending a little bit of time with us. Thanks for Thank having you. us. So can I ask you a question that's been really confusing to me? Mm -hmm. The folks who brought forward this ballot question are opposed to transgender rights, and yet the campaign is yes on three. Help. Yeah, this is one of our biggest uh, issues that we are dealing with is just uh, name recognition for the campaign. We are the yes on three campaign. We are voting yes to uphold the law. Here's why. This is a referendum. It's one of the first referendums uh, in Massachusetts on the ballot in over 20 years. The way the law is written, if there's a referendum on the ballot, we are asking voters to approve the law passed by the legislature. So that's how the wording on the ballot will actually read. Do you approve of the law passed by the legislature? Got it. That makes yes more sense. Vote. Okay. And how has that communication been going? That I mean, 
I feel like I'm a big nerd. I'm up to speed on things. And I was confused about that. How is yeah. it going talking to voters? Well, we lo- we've known for a long time that we would be the yes vote. Okay. We didn't know what our number would be until this summer. Uh, and so we've been for a long time trying to get that yes messaging out there. Um, and quite honestly, there's still a gap. There's still work to be done to let people know that we are the yes vote. It's very confusing. Uh, because ultimately, I think if people don't really know a lot about the issue at the ballot, they'll say, no, I want to keep the status quo. And so that's a that's a heavy, uh, that's a large hurdle for us to get over. Uh, but we're doing the work. I think that it's uh, awareness is picking up, uh, particularly now that we are post uh, Labor Day and primary day and people are paying attention. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we want people to know to vote yes on three to uphold transgender protections. And so, Matt, why do you think that um, there's this campaign against three? That's a great question. I mean, I think it is rooted in um, some type of transgender um, uh, discrimination. It's uh, as basic as that. I think at the core of our campaign, we are talking about upholding transgender dignity and respect, uh, dignity and respect for all people, including transgender people. Um, this is about much more than restrooms, which our opponents like to focus on. This is about what happens in restaurants and hotels and movie theaters and train stations and everywhere else that is not work, home, or school. Uh, people should be able to go about living their lives in those spaces without fear of discrimination harass- or harassment. Uh, and that's what this law does. It protects them from that. I like to say that it's much more about one type of room. It's about many types of rooms. Hotel rooms, emergency rooms, hospital rooms. There's a lot of different types of rooms. And for the opposition to narrow in on one is is narrow-minded. Yeah, I mean, you know, as as you know, I'm a Republican. Um, I don't agree with the no on question three folks. But, you know, one of the things that they they are targeting is the bathroom aspect of it. And I'm a mom with three young girls, and they frequently go into the bathroom when we're out at a restaurant by Wait, themselves. Wait, girls go to the bathroom a lot? <laughs> no. Whoa. No, shocking. I Especially know. teenage groups? girls when they're not allowed to have phones at the table. <laughs> never sneak their phones into the bathroom. They have outsmarted so you. Out. <laughs> so can we address that specifically? Yeah, definitely. Because I want to answer that concern because I know it's on a lot of people's minds, and I think, Jeannie, you may have some thoughts on this as well. First of all, we all care about safety and security and privacy. That is the first thing that everyone knows. The second most important thing to understand is that uh, the picture that's being painted by our opponents just hasn't happened. Okay, so look at the city of Boston. The city of Boston has had these protections on the books at the local level for more than a decade. And there has been no uptick in incidents in these spaces. Uh, look at the 18 other states that have had these protections in place. There just has been no uptick in these in these uh, spaces. The other thing to keep in mind is that if someone enters these spaces with the intent of committing a crime or uh, harassing or dis- or assaulting someone, they will be arrested. That is still a crime. Nothing about this law changes that. They'll be arrested, prosecuted, and quite frankly, as they should be. I, uh, you know, I feel very strongly that. I am not willing as a parent to sacrifice your child's safety for my own. Um, That's what equality is about, right? Your child's safety is as equally as important as mine. And, you know, when I think about this, I turn to research and I turn to public safety officials and, um, and our police and 
people like that who have a strong opinion on this, uh, feet on the ground experience. And if I turn, if you turn to that research and you turn to those people that we trust and respect, they overwhelmingly, unequivocally say that this law makes everyone more safe, not less. Jeannie, tell us about your daughter. We're, we should let people know we're uh, recording this in the middle of the school day. Um, so we're, we're letting her focus on her studies and not come and chat with us. But um, tell us about her. I know she's been really involved in the campaign. And what's she like as, you know, a human being? So I wish, you know, this is a podcast, so you I can't show you a picture of her. But you certainly can check out her YouTube channel. <laughs> she, and she would love that. Excellent but, plug, Mom. <laughs> I am the momager, right? So, and, and what is that? If you're going to plug it, you may as well plug it. Where, where is she on YouTube? So she's Nicole Talbot on YouTube. Um, so Nicole is a 17-year-old girl. Um, she's in high school. She's going for her license test, her, you know, her um, road test next week. Um, she's a she's a junior in high school and she is Broadway bound. That is her dream. And um, she is, uh, you know, she has a voice from the heaven. I don't know where she got it. She's also a finalist to replace Renee Rancourt um, as the anthem singer for the Boston Bruins. Stop it. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. It's pretty cool. That's it's pretty awesome. cool. So yeah, she's in school today and she's going to be super jealous when she finds out that I'm doing uh, a podcast and she's studying. <laughs> yeah, but she's a finalist to sing the uh, the national anthem with the Bruins. So you're... you're uh, our little podcast doesn't even compete with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's, I, she's got you beat. This but, is this is peanuts. But Nicole, <laughs> Nicole is your typical, um, your typical teenager, except that she'll go toe to toe with the governor if she's asked. You know, um, she'll go have a conversation with a senator or a representative and have a conversation and sit toe to toe and face to face and say, "I'm transgender. How can you question this law? Look at me. You know, I would be." much more uh, unsafe. I would be unsafe um, if this law were, were overturned. And, and so we spend a lot of our own time, our personal time, really standing up and standing out and speaking out for other families with transgender children because it's so important, because there is so much riding on this uh, referendum and, you know, spending a lot of time saying vote yes on three. How has this, oh, sorry, Jen, how, how has this been for you as a family? You know, I was there when the bill was uh, signed into law, and it was such a high, right? And now just a few short years later to be fighting for those same rights, that that has to be a roller coaster. How is your family handling all of this? So our family is me and my daughter, and we are arm in arm in this, and we were, we were, you know, in the gallery when it passed as well, watching the names on that board mm -hmm. flip um, to yes. And it was absolutely incredible. We felt um, very much a part of that campaign, but more so about the narrative and the story about transgender people and what this law truly means. Um, were we disappointed? Yeah. Were we shocked? Maybe. Um, but here's the truth. There are so many marginalized groups that have to stand up and keep fighting constantly. And so we'll do our part. 
and this is part of that journey. And um, we are committed, absolutely committed, to making sure that everyone we know, and now all of your listeners, vote yes on three. That's our moms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our, our moms are listening closely. And, and my mom posts it on Facebook and is, like, super proud. And I'm thinking, Aww. can you just do me a favor and stop posting everything <laughs> I do? Mom, stop posting everything on Facebook. My I'm parents not on are Facebook. not on Facebook. <laughs> and it means I can post embarrassing things about them. It's a, it's a great turn. Well, if she uses the ha- hashtag yes on three, she can post this. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Jeannie does a great job of summarizing what I think this law is really all about. Um, and so I'm going to steal a line that I that she's said many times that's really resonated with me. For the vast majority of people in Massachusetts, this law will have no impact on them, ever. But for the people who it does impact, it means the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. So with that, Matt, I, you know, again, I'm going to play kind of devil's advocate on yep. the for the no people, um, you know, another argument that I've heard is what's the cost on small business owners? Uh, what's the cost on school districts? If you go to a public school district, a public school, that's taxpayer funded, sure. right? So, what is take it take it to um, where they're looking at? It's not a emotional. It's not a it's not a family issue. It's not a safety issue. Then it becomes okay. Well. Small businesses can't afford this. Then yeah. what's what is the uh, what what are what's the message that we want to tell? Sure. Well, first of all, just set aside schools because schools are not covered under this part of the law. So this repeal has nothing to do with schools. Um, secondly, I would say there is no cost to businesses. Businesses are not required to create new spaces or new restrooms. All they are uh, required to do is not discriminate or harass against their customers. It's as simple as that. And I would just mention that the business community has really come out in support of this campaign overwhelmingly. We have a number of big and small businesses, uh, hundreds of them, in fact, uh, that have joined our coalition, some of the biggest names in the state and some of the smallest ones that are on your local street corner supporting our campaign because they know that this upholding this law is good for our economy. It's not just the right thing to do. It's a smart thing to do. We, look, we need to look no further than North Carolina to see the impact on the economy. They lost over $600 uh, million in revenue in, in their economy uh, just based on the law that was uh, passed there, the heinous anti-LGBT uh, law uh, that was eventually partially uh, repealed. So That's can great. I ask a political question? Um, oh, is this are... a political show? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> I don't know. Jen and I have done a little <laughs> bit. We, we really, we had very years. little interest in it. We just you keep working on it. You'll well. be fine. <laughs> you'll get far in this business for both of you. Yeah. Well, we're working on it. Um, so the polling results actually looked great for you guys, right? Seventy-two some odd percent yes. What was it? Seventeen percent no, and very few undecided. Under ten percent undecided. So one, what does that mean for your strategy over the next six weeks? And two, I'm really curious because the ballot question dynamic has changed so much over the past few months. You know, if you had asked anyone from the political chattering classes six months ago, you'd say it would be the transgender ballot question, minimum wage, fair share, you know, go on and on down the list, paid family leave. And all of a sudden, you know, there aren't a whole heck of a lot of them. What does that all mean for your strategy to get your folks out? Yeah, we were worried that we're going to have like an 18 page ballot, right? Um, (laughs) Luckily, that didn't happen. well, first of all, I would say the polling um, is, we, we're we not taking anything for granted with the polling. Um, that support is high. We don't think it'll be quite as high as that. We think that is a bit of an outlier, that poll from our own internal polling and uh, the public polls that have come out. We think it'll be much closer. So the message there is we can take nothing for granted. 
And the reason we know that is because there have been, uh, history tells us this, uh, these fights have happened in other cities and municipalities, and they've always been much closer. And the reason for that is because our opponent's messaging, while misleading and untruthful, is very effective for people who are not paying attention. Uh, so they will, um, if they follow their normal playbook, which we expect they will, they will stay very quiet. And then at the last, uh, the 11th hour of this election, they will go up on the air with uh, frightening television ads. Um, we've already seen um, evidence of that. Uh, that'll scare people who aren't really paying attention. So our job as a Yes on 3 campaign is to get out there and tell people why those ads are misleading and not truthful and uh, really based in fear, not in facts. Um, and then in terms of you know, what this means as you know, being just one of three ballot questions, I think uh, a lot of attention is going to be on us and certainly on question one. Uh, I think that's where a lot of the attention will be. Uh, and I think that's good for us because I think it means more people will be tuned in to what's really on the ballot and what's at stake. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a it's even more people understand this more than they understand question one, which I think has become really confusing for people. But I mean, I think this is important for, you know, as again, from the Republican perspective, you know, we're supposed to be the party of families and family units and keeping families together and keeping families safe and secure and feeling loved. And um, this is right. As a, as a mom, your kid is your child and the most important thing in your entire life, regardless of whether, you know, they, you know, tattoo their face or get piercings all over or, you know, decide. So wait, your kids have face tattoos? <laughs> no, no. And they're not, not allowed to. As a matter yet. of fact, I used to let my daughter wear um, colored hair extensions to school when she was little to her nice little Christian school um, because I ho was hopeful that she would get it out of her system by the time she was a teenager. <laughs> that hasn't really worked because she's been bleaching her hair and God knows what else, you know, midi earrings, and that's just the start. So well, Jennifer, this is actually a great point that I want to touch upon, though, because this is one I think this question is something we can all agree on. Yeah. So this question is bipartisan. Our campaign is bipartisan. Um, obviously, this uh, this bill was enacted by the legislature with an overwhelming supermajority vote on with votes from both sides of the aisle, and of course signed by Governor Charlie Baker. Um, and so that just proves, I think, for a lot of people that this is not about one political party or one ideology. This is about uh, acknowledging that as a state, we are not going to accept harassment and discrimination of any kind. That's not what Massachusetts values are about, and that's not what Democratic values are about or Repu Republican values Absolutely. are about. I also think that the the average voter may, doesn't understand this, this um, referendum. I think it's, you know, how many people actually know a transgender person have sat down with them or maybe even read an article about a transgender person to truly have the spirit of understanding. Um, so I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of misinformation about what this this question is really about. And I think that's why Matt and I are here and why so many other families of transgender kids in particular and the entire transgender community are really uh, working overtime between now and election day to really get the truth out there and to uh, paint a picture of what this law is really about and why it should stay in place. And that's actually a great point. We, I worked on the legislative fight, getting this through the legislature. What we saw with legislators was that when they didn't know a transgender person, when people like Jeannie and Nicole came and met with them, they moved. 
it was that personal connection, that storytelling, that made the move. And one perfect yeah, and example of that, that with marriage with marriage was a great example yeah. of that. And in this particular instance, was uh, Republican um, uh, Republican lawmaker Shirley Harrington, who originally had voted against this law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then was on our, on our side supporting it because she understood after having had these conversations how important uh, it is to vote yes on three. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, thank you very much both for being in here. I will tell you that I am voting yes on three. Yay! Yay! Yes! <laughs> Guys, so spoiler have, alert, so am I. <laughs> yes! Jesse! Yeah. No I way! I, th- I thought that they had to woo you over. <laughs> um, but thank you very much for being here today with us. We really appreciate it. And good luck. And Glitter certificates are in the mail. I thank can't you. wait to watch Nicole's YouTube. Yes. I think my kids and I will sit down later and we'll watch it. Great. Congratulations on the podcast. Thank oh, you. thanks. So fun. Thanks, guys. Okay. Well, I think that is it. I can't handle any more of you. 20 minutes is like kind of where I max out. <laughs> Jesse, we've spent a lot of time together. It has <laughs> been a lot. <laughs> Mostly enjoyable. Mostly enjoyable, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I have to say, it has been it has been a pleasure. <laughs> and, uh, and I look forward to doing this again in two weeks. And thank you for, uh, Mom, thank you for listening. Yeah, hi, again. Mom. And thank you, Mom, all of your friends in Florida for listening to me <laughs> on this podcast. I am Jennifer Nassor, and I'm a Republican. And I'm Jesse Mermel, and I'm a Democrat. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you in two weeks. 